it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Thursday, February the 9th, 2023. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show live from Charlotte, North Carolina today. Very glad to be here. Even gladder that you are here with me for the next three hours, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, every weekday, and then around the clock for free on demand on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. You can also find us at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. At Guy Benson Show is our handle on both Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow us. You can also follow me personally on those same platforms at Guy P. Benson. Here's the lineup today. Josh Krasauer will join us coming up later on in the hour. Politics reporter at Axios, always a thoughtful reporter and analyst, and we'll talk about the political news of the day with Josh. Congresswoman Kat Kamak, Republican of Florida, will join us in the next hour. Looking forward to that conversation. And then I guess it's a Florida kind of day. I am in the southeast after all. Senator Rick Scott from the Sunshine State will be our guest just after the top of the 5 p.m. hour Eastern, so please do stay tuned for that. Yesterday here on the show, I mentioned that the Super Bowl is coming up, Super Bowl Sunday, upcoming Eagles and Chiefs, and typically, dating back decades, the President of the United States does an interview with the host network of the Super Bowl, and we gave the examples of Barack Obama going toe-to-toe with Bill O'Reilly, for example, on Fox broadcasts, And it's been a bipartisan tradition, with very few exceptions. And at least last we heard, there was still no word from the White House about whether they were going to engage in an interview with Fox this time around, because it's a Fox Super Bowl. Brett Bayer, Shannon Bream, all sorts of great options. And my understanding is it's just been crickets from the White House. I think part of it, as I said yesterday, is because the president's team doesn't trust him In one-on-one interviews, he doesn't do well in those settings. He also understands, Biden does, and the people around him understand, that an interview with one of our journalists is going to be probably more difficult, a bit more adversarial than it would be with any number of outlets, right? We would, I think, Fox would conduct a Biden interview the way that Republican presidents experience interviews from every other network all the time which is the way it's supposed to be, by the way, an adversarial press. Not really the case typically between most of the news media and the Democrats because they are all Democrats together. But the president and his advisors will occasionally select certain outlets and certain journalists. So I guess he's going to do a Telemundo interview. I saw that. And then yesterday he did a PBS interview. And these are rare. So it's newsworthy whenever Biden does one. It was Judy Woodruff. Formerly, if I recall correctly, of CNN, she's been at PBS for years, and she asked, you know, some fair enough questions. Overall, kind of a softball, and and she was accepting a lot of his premises on issues, even in the framing of her questions. All that being said, he did make some comments that are gaining scrutiny, as they should, 
and I would like to play a couple of those sound bites for you. Uh, starting with this one, he was asked, Biden was, about his age and the 2024 election. She lays it out, and then Biden gives an answer that's familiar at this point because he said similar things in the past in Cut 10. Listen. You'd be 82, date of the next election, 86, if you're successful and elected and finish that term. Does it give you any concern? Watch me. <laughs> That's all I can say. I mean, you know, it goes from one extreme to the other. I, last night I was hit, well, I heard that people were saying, well, just watch Biden. My God, age is not an issue anymore. It, it's, look, I'm a great respecter of fate. I would be completely thoroughly honest with the American people if I thought there was any health problem, anything that would keep me from being able to do the job. So he said this before on some of the questions about age. He's the oldest president in history. Watch me. I think the problem is that we have been watching him. And a lot of the time, it doesn't go terribly well. Not just in terms of his policies, which have been disastrous on most fronts, but his public performances, his public appearances, he struggles, not irregularly. Another part of the problem, a compounding element of the problem, is that we've also been watching. You said just possessing classified documents is, you said, totally irresponsible. So what was totally irresponsible about the fact that you had some? What they've informed me not to speak to this issue to any way try to prejudice the investigation that's going on. But what I was talking about was what was laid out. All these documents were top secret, code word, and all the rest. I'm not at liberty, and I'm not even sure. I, I made voluntarily. No one's had to threaten to do anything. Voluntarily open every single aperture I have with the house, offices, everything, for them to come and look and spend hours searching my home. Invited them. Nobody. And... So, and the best of my knowledge, the kinds of things they picked up are things that from 1974 and stray papers. There may be something else I don't know. Okay, so that was a clip there from the same interview about the classified documents. And Biden tries to say, oh, I don't want to prejudice the investigation. I can't really comment. But then he does comment quite a bit. And he's trying to draw the distinction between what he's done and what Trump did and why Trump's situation was worse. He said, look at all like the top secret markings. Well, we know at least some of the material found where it shouldn't have been in Biden's possession was also top secret. I'm not sure that's a very good response or excuse there. It's either totally irresponsible to have this stuff or it's not. It doesn't matter if you want to say that you were very cooperative or whatever. I did this all voluntarily. He went back to those talking points. It's either totally irresponsible to have top secret stuff that you shouldn't have in places where they're not allowed to be or it's not. We know that he has said now repeatedly has no regrets about it. He takes no blame for it. And then here he is making additional excuses and hoping that people haven't really been following the story. Because he said toward the end of that clip, to the best of my knowledge, the kinds of things they picked up, meaning his lawyers and then later the FBI, were things from 1974 and stray papers. Well, 1974, he was in the Senate. How you get classified materials out of the Senate is a mystery because we've had multiple senators saying that is extremely hard to do, given the way that this material is held and controlled. I mean, maybe things were different 
was it like you know, 40 plus years ago. But there have been people on the Hill a long time saying that is one of the big question marks here, how he took classified stuff out of the Senate. But it's not just some quote unquote stray papers from the 70s. We know that there was top secret material, as I mentioned. We also know there was material from his time as vice president, which was much more recent. I think he's trying to kind of pretend that this was all way, way in the distant past. Let's also not forget, this stuff was found in, what, five or six different locations around his house and in an office in a closet, right, the garage famously. It's not some stray papers from the 70s. That might be part of it. It's not the complete picture. I think that he's distorting the complete picture for his own political reasons while then claiming yet again this you know, incredible, generous transparency that he's been offering the American people, even though they hit all of this stuff for months, especially with an election coming up. We did not know about this. And they've been releasing it as they see fit until the whole thing started to snowball. So, I mean, that answer really doesn't stand up to any meaningful examination. Then he went on to kind of pass the buck and blame some unnamed other people for doing a sloppy job or whatever. Cut nine. One of the things that happened is that what was not done well is as they packed up my offices to move them, they didn't do the kind of job that should have been done to go thoroughly through every single piece of literature that's there. But uh, I just let the, the investigation have, you know, decide what's going on and we'll see what happens i mean this unnamed vague they are at fault you have to understand right so he has said explicitly he takes no blame and has no regrets although he takes it all very seriously and here he is saying one of the things that happened very passive voice is that what was not done well is that they packed up my offices to move them. They didn't do the kind of job that should have been done to go thoroughly through every single piece of literature. So I guess it's like low-level, nameless staffers that he wants to shove this off on. And to the extent that there was any problem here at all, it was uh, those they who didn't do their job properly. No personal responsibility at all. No buck stops with me. None of that. The buck, of course, stopped with Trump, and it was all horrifying and terrible and grossly irresponsible. But in his case, it's just, you know, man, it's straight papers from the 70s that they didn't pack up properly. Goes well beyond that. The timeline that he's telling us, also incomplete, he is dissembling here. And the blame shift, not, not subtle at all. Meanwhile, in the same interview, and we'll talk about this later in the show, we mentioned it yesterday, Biden is out there, I guess, embracing this talking point that propped up and cropped up immediately during and after the State of the Union, that he had won this big victory in the exchange with the Republicans over Medicare and Social Security. So I guess since people are telling him that was a big win, and people were really tripping over themselves to declare how impressive it was and what a great speech it was. It was like really almost trying to convince themselves. Now you understand when you're grading on a curve. You understand when there's some great inflation. There's a lot of inflation on a lot of things during this president, obviously, including the grading of these types of assessments. And we saw some of that with Trump, too, 
where like Trump would give a good disciplined speech from a teleprompter and be like, oh, wow, that was really good and really presidential. I mean, it's based on a baseline, right? It's based on the expectations for Trump and now for Biden. That being said, in cut one, here he was spiking the football on Medicare and Social Security. I just don't think this actually makes sense. It's not what actually happened, but this is the version that is, you know, very popular out there on the left and in the media. Listen. When I pointed out that um, some Republicans are talking about eliminating Medicare, they said, no, no, no. I said, oh, okay. That means all of you are for supporting Medicare. Everybody raise your hand. They all raise their hand. So guess what? We accomplished something. If they, unless they break their word, there's going to be no cuts in Medicare or Social Security. Okay. He was lying about what the Republicans were proposing. In the context of the debt ceiling negotiations, they had taken Medicare and Social Security cuts and reforms off the table in that moment for that purpose. He keeps saying the opposite. He said it again in front of tens of millions of people, although the ratings were way down, as we mentioned yesterday. And they were upset about that because it just wasn't true. And he's treating this like it was some big accomplishment. That's the word he used. Because he got the Republicans on the record supporting Medicare. No, he completely distorted what their position was in the conversation that was being had in the moment about the debt ceiling fight. I think Republicans are perfectly fine raising their hands in support of Medicare. I would argue that actually supporting Medicare requires making sure that it remains solvent for future generations. We're being forced every paycheck to pay into this stuff. And the trustees of these programs keep every year warning us we are running out of money, there are shortfalls, and this stuff is going to, these programs are going to go insolvent. They're going to cease to exist as they exist in X number of years, and the deadline keeps getting closer and closer. We need to do something about that. Doing it right now in the debt ceiling battle, I think, is the wrong approach. The Republicans have ruled it out. That was the crux of what happened the other night. Not that Republicans say we can never touch Medicare or Social Security. It would be dereliction of duty of the highest order to not touch those programs for future seniors at some point, and we're running out of time, because of the basic arithmetic. And, I mean, it, it's just actually depressing how... Many of the Republicans don't want to touch it ever for any reason because of the political attacks. And the Democrats want to goad people into thinking the Republicans might do something that is just mathematically necessary at some point. Just the absolute lack of seriousness in the short-term political thinking is a grave disservice to future generations, but I guess that's commonplace in Washington, D.C., Last but not least, cut five, Biden on the Republican investigations into his family, into his son, for example, the foreign business dealings. He thinks it's NBD. No one cares. Listen here. One of the things Republicans say is a priority for them is investigating your family, your son, Hunter, your brother, Jim. They talk about uh, uh, access that they say others have gotten because of you, because of your political success. How do, you, how do you plan to, to deal with that? The public's not going to pay attention to that. They, they want these guys to do something. If the only thing they can do is make up things about my family, it's not going to go very far. Well, it's not made up. That's the problem here. 
right? Notice the transition from this is Russian disinformation that's been fabricated to, oh, no one really cares about this. That is an interesting, I would say, revealing pivot. More actually on this same front. We've got a couple other sound bites to play. We'll get to them. AOC weighing in, CNN. That's all straight ahead. It's the Guy Benson Show just getting started. Stay with us. Guy Benson will be right back. This is Jimmy Fallon inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. So they've dragged a social media platform here in Congress. They're weaponizing the use of this committee so that they can do it again. A whole hearing about a 24-hour hiccup in a right-wing political operation. That is why we are here right now. And it is, it, it's just a, an abuse of public resources, an abuse of public time. We could be talking about health care. We could be talking about bringing down the cost of prescription drugs. We could be talking about abortion rights, civil rights, voting rights. But instead, we're talking about Hunter Biden's half-fake laptop story. I mean, this is an embarrassment. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. That was AOC yesterday. In the hearing on some of these matters, obviously, she was very unhappy. She called it an embarrassment, and in fairness, she is something of an authority on national embarrassments. She called it a waste of public resources and abuse of public time. She also knows a thing or two about that, doesn't she? Her complaint seemed to be, well, we could be talking about all the issues I want to talk about, that I care about. But instead, we're talking about Hunter Biden's, quote, half-fake laptop story. What is a half-fake story? What's the half That's fake, I wonder, in her mind. The real answer, by the way, is the half-fake part of it was the part where they told us it was Russian disinformation, and it wasn't. That it wasn't authentic, and it was the Russians meddling in election when it wasn't. It was authentic all along, and the questions raised by it on the foreign business dealings are legitimate. The half-fake part was the lie that led to the cover-up of that story, the censorship of it, the censorship on not just Twitter, but other places. The weaponization of the, you know, the the reputations of intelligence officers who had retired, that's a much bigger story than what she's trying to pretend that it is. I saw on CNN, Don Lemon was mocking the notion of citing the New York Post in this context as a reliable source. (laughs) As if like, oh, CNN is super reliable, unlike the New York Post. Did he miss the entire part? where the New York Post story on this has been vindicated by the facts. Maybe he's in a bubble that thick. Would it surprise you? Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Welcome back. Very glad you're here. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcasts always free, always on demand every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. With us now, Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News contributor. Josh, welcome back to the show. 
Guy, great to be back with you. So you and I have had a few conversations, and I think we both concede at this stage they are ludicrously early. That's the phrase I keep using. As we look at national polling in a Republican primary looking ahead to 2024, uh, involving a bunch of people who haven't even announced for president. I know Nikki Haley is now being featured in a lot of these polls, and we know she's going to announce her run next week, but she's still technically not in. There's only one candidate in on either side. It's Donald Trump. That being said, there seemed to be a lot of momentum for Ron DeSantis in some of these national and some state-level polls in Republican primary. Then you had commented, and we talked about it here on the show, about how Trump seemed to be surging again back ahead. And then just today we've got a number of different polls that are interesting, kind of all over the map. There's a YouGov Yahoo poll that has Trump and DeSantis neck and neck in a multi-way primary. In a three-way primary, it's, again, neck and neck, Trump and DeSantis, Nikki Haley pulling 11%. In a head-to-head two-way, DeSantis is up by four points. Then you've got another poll from Premise Data, which I'm not familiar with. That's not a pollster that I know, but they have Trump lapping the field by far, 57%. DeSantis way behind, Trump ahead by 20 points head-to-head against Ron DeSantis. Then you've got the Monmouth poll. Uh, which is a pretty well-known, well-respected poll. And the Monmouth poll has DeSantis and Trump tied in a multi-way primary, head-to-head DeSantis over Trump by 13 points. DeSantis 53, Trump 40. And DeSantis really has uh, a really strong net favorability rating, much stronger than Trump's. So, I mean, I just mentioned three polls out in the last 48 hours or so. And two of them show a pretty close race, but DeSantis ahead, uh, certainly in the head-to-head matchup, and one showing Trump way ahead. I mean, you'd have to think that Trump world at least believes there's a possibility that DeSantis might pose a serious threat, given the things that Donald Trump himself is out there saying and amplifying on social media. Yeah, Guy, it's so fascinating to look at all the numbers. I was in New Hampshire a couple weeks ago for Trump's first campaign event. Uh, This is, you know, looking at these polls, they're a snapshot in time. I don't know if they're very predictive about where things are going to end up at the end of the year. Uh, And and look, I think one thing is clear that Trump has lost a good deal of political altitude from where he was a year or two ago from when he was president. And he also still does command support from about a third – of the Republican Party electorate. Uh, The big question is, who decides to run, and how does that race engage? I mean, Ron DeSantis has taken his time to formally enter this race, so that's allowed Trump, and he's already, as you noted, Guy, he's already kind of posted on his Truth Social account some uh, what I would consider below-the-belt attacks against Ron DeSantis. Nikki Haley's coming in the race, uh, and she'll be the only candidate running against Trump as of next week. Uh, you know, what happens? Does, does, does Trump and DeSantis, do they go after each other? Does it get ugly, allowing a third candidate to maybe get some momentum? Does DeSantis uh, try to, like, you know, not go after Trump? Does he go go full bore against him? There's so many known unknowns in the words of Don, Don Rumsfeld. It's it's hard to really kind of project things until we know who's actually running. Well, especially, look, especially because, Josh, and, and you know this too, momentum is such an important thing. And you look at the early states, if someone really catches fire – 
and has clear momentum out of those first couple of primaries and caucuses, then the national polling starts to reflect that, right? People want to get on a bandwagon. So, I mean, it's useful to look at the national numbers. I think that if DeSantis is running, he can probably look at quite a few of these data points that I just ran through and be pretty encouraged. But what's it looking like in Iowa? What's it especially looking like in New Hampshire and South Carolina? Those are going to be the more pertinent questions nine, ten months from now, I think. But to the point that you just made, you know, what would this potential race look like if DeSantis gets in and let's say, you know, he and Trump are still far and away, you know, front of the pack. Let's just say hypothetically that's the case heading toward Iowa in the early primaries. What is DeSantis going to do when Trump is throwing this stuff at him? Because we've seen the Trump people saying that actually DeSantis was uh, a bad governor on COVID stuff and he was, you know, Mr. Shutdown. And the DNC rapid response operation was mobilizing to actually boost that attack against DeSantis from Trump. We've seen Trump arguing that it'd be very, very disloyal for DeSantis to run because he helped DeSantis get elected, you know, five years ago or whatever. Uh, We haven't really seen that explicit argument. uh, Trump making that that point about people in his own cabinet who were thinking about running for president, who have announced perhaps that they're going to run for president. So he's singling DeSantis out on that one. And then the what you, I think, just alluded to is the below-the-belt situation. We talked about it here yesterday. Some people on Truth, uh, Truth Social trying to argue that Ron DeSantis is like a pedophile or a groomer of young girls because of some decades-old photo of him as a 20-something with, with allegedly high school students. And he's smiling, and they might have been at a party. It's unclear what kind of party. I mean, they just leapt to groomer and pedophile and all this stuff. And Trump himself was amplifying that stuff and basically tossing that out there. I I did sort of muse on the air. I don't know where you go from there. If you've already emptied your clip that Ron DeSantis is a groomer of children by February of 2023, I'm not really sure how much lower you can get. Perhaps they'll, you know, they'll experiment on that stuff. But I'm here in North Carolina for an event, Josh. I was at the gym earlier, hotel gym, and against my will, the view came on. (laughs) Um, And I sometimes describe that as a daily nationally televised insane asylum, and I never actually see it live. But there it was right in front of me when I was on, you know, the equipment. And they this was their lead story. Trump attacking DeSantis, DeSantis not really punching back, just saying his job is to focus on results for Floridians. His job is to fight the Democrats and Biden. He doesn't spend his time smearing other Republicans. And that got a big round of applause from the Republicans who were there in that crowd when DeSantis said it. The ladies of The View were talking about it. And I'll just say they seemed almost universally giddy that this was happening. Uh, They hate Trump, but they clearly are contemptuous of DeSantis. Uh, They were kind of egging Trump on in this stuff. And one of the points that they kept making was, you know, is DeSantis scared? And at some point, you can try take the high road, but do you never respond to stuff in a meaningful way? You know, I'm not surprised that the lefties on The View are rooting for Trump over DeSantis for the same reason the Democrats are rooting for Trump over DeSantis in, the, in what would be a primary. But there is something to this argument that DeSantis will have to make a choice at some point. Obviously not yet. We're months away from him even maybe announcing but at some point, you would imagine he would have to engage beyond just like, you know, vague, high road, almost ignoring what Trump's saying and then just making passing oblique reference to it. Uh, unless I'm wrong, unless that's the game plan. I'm just not sure if that's going to work. 
Well, two things, Guy. Uh, first off, my hunch is that these attacks are not going to be particularly successful. They're, they're, they seem to be very below the belt, but not just that. They're, they're, you know, they're very, happening very early, and they seem a little bit desperate. Um, and that, that's how Trump has looked in the first two months of, of his campaign, kind of desperate. Uh, I was in New Hampshire. The, the crowd was, was certainly supportive, but, but not overwhelmingly enthusiastic. Uh, a lot of people are looking for a different uh, nominee in 2024. And look, I, I, the second point you raise is, is, is the big question. There, there are a lot of questions, Guy, about how Ron DeSantis's appeal in Florida will translate nationally. Uh, it's no secret that he's seen as even among friends, can be a little bit prickly, doesn't have that um, kind of warmth that other Republicans that are in the field can often show. And look, traditionally, you, you've heard of the beer test. Who, who would you rather have a beer with? That's usually the person who wins the presidential nomination or the presidential election. You know, I don't know if DeSantis it rates highly on that, on that beer test, and that's what a lot of uh, concerned Republicans have about DeSantis. Like, he clearly has captured the id. The, the enthusiasm, uh, and the, he knows the issues uh, that drive the Republican Party base, and he's governed in a way that reflects those values. Um, but, but, but you know, we don't know how he's going to perform in the Clegg lights of a national campaign, how well he's going to do at these town halls in New Hampshire and at these uh, coffee shops in Iowa. Uh, that's retail politics, and DeSantis has never really done retail politics uh, all that much. So, you know, that's why, I mean, I. I I do think that there's an opportunity for the, – the, the other big question in this field is that how many Republicans are going to jump in. Uh, there, there, there's part, some Republicans think that there needs to be sort of an insurance policy because you don't really know how DeSantis is going to perform. And there are a lot of other good and talented conservative Republicans potentially in the mix. But there's another faction that is worried that there will be too many Republicans that get in and split each other's support and end up helping Trump end up getting the nomination uh, again. So you know, th- th- there's a lot of volatility a lot of uncertainty. If DeSantis can perform, if he if he can kind of, you know, re- assuage the doubters out there that, that don't that are skeptical that he can perform politically at the national level, um, you know, I think he'll do very well. I think he he may end up being the favorite against Trump. But if, if he ends up faltering a little bit and these attacks stick, uh, then then we're in we're in sort of uncertain territory. Yeah, I, go any, any one of the. It could go many different directions. I don't think the he's a bad shutdown COVID governor is going to stick. I don't think that, you know, he's personally disloyal to Trump is something that a lot of people care about. I know Trump cares about it, but a lot of other people don't. I don't think the the ridiculous, you know, groomer smears, that's not going to stick. What could stick is, you know, is he cold on the stump? Is he not really adept at debating and dealing with the day in and day out of what a presidential campaign entails, which is different than the type of campaign he was able to run in Florida, not just in 2016, but especially in 2020 or sorry, 2022, just last year. I mean, he won by almost 20 points. It's extremely impressive. The results speak for themselves. The outcomes are there. That's why I think he's got the momentum that he does and the support that he does already But you can't – I mean, it was very carefully managed at a very high level in Florida, and he was so far ahead and had such a track record of success with people in Florida flocking to that state. They intuitively understood it. He he had the luxury of running exactly the kind of campaign that he wanted to run in Florida, and he will probably not have that same luxury in a very different – setting and scenario, which is a presidential race, which entails a lot of different stuff, some of which may not be his top strengths. And people have strengths and weaknesses. There's no one who's perfect and strong on everything. I think that's why the process does need to play out. Uh, But I also think it's it's no secret why 
he's getting the attention that he has based on, again, just like the scoreboard in Florida. And I don't think you accomplish and put those points up on the scoreboard to that extent if there's nothing there and you're politically untalented. So it's something that I'm watching, obviously, early stages with great interest. Josh, I want to shift to a very different topic. I know something that you follow pretty closely. I do, too. We both live right in the Washington, D.C. area. We've been talking about crime across the country. It was a big campaign focus in New York, for example. D.C. crime is bad and getting worse, and we keep flagging examples of it, and people, you know, Starbucks pulling out of Union Station, McDonald's pulling out from the the hockey arena, uh, a bunch of local businesses begging for help because of just repeat robberies. The statistics are horrible. The city council has gone out of its way to reduce criminal penalties for a number of violent crimes. It's just like going in the exact wrong direction. And just this week, there have been just an explosion of stories about robberies and assaults and things happening all over the district, including today, a Democratic congresswoman from Minnesota. She was assaulted inside her apartment building, like in an elevator in Washington, D.C. And you just sort of wonder, I I know... House Republicans are looking to maybe try to impose some stuff over the will of the city council. The city council seems to be like genuinely insane on on crime related issues. The problems keep getting worse and you kind of wonder, is congressional intervention perhaps inevitable because of just what we're seeing in the streets? This could be a real opportunity for House Republicans uh, if they choose to take it, because uh, the issue of home rule has certainly come up before in the, Mar- the battle days of uh, the Marion Barry mayoral uh, times uh, when crime was bad or worse than it is now, uh, when, when, when it was, you know, the, 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 they didn't have full autonomy of, of the city because of the inability to govern effectively. Um, Congress does have that, that, that ability. Uh, Republic, you know, there have been a lot of effective mayors from Tony Williams to uh, Adrian Fenty. Like we, we, we had a city council and a, a mayoralty in D.C. that was effective, and, and those issues haven't come up in quite some time. But your point, I mean, the city council almost voted unanimously at 12, 12 to 1, I believe, to reduce penalties for carjackings and assaults and all types of violent crime at the same time that crime is spiking or certainly at a very elevated rate across the city and only getting worse. There was a shooting on, on a metro right, right outside a metro station near Capitol Hill just, just a week or two ago. So th- this is, this is – uh, the data shows it. The anecdotes are very, very, very powerful and, and painful to, to read. And uh, that's a crime was an issue that look at New York. The one, one, one of the few states where Republicans really overperformed was in, in, in New York because of the crime issue in Long Island and New York City. And um, look, when you have the, the weird thing, guy, is that a lot of blue cities from San Francisco to New York, you have Eric Adams, you have the mayor of San Francisco really sounding tough on crime and really get, getting some results and cracking down on some of the, these criminal criminals and activity in their cities. D.C. has gone in the opposite direction. I've never seen anything quite like this. When you have a crime wave and you have a elected governance that actually is trying to, to liberalize the penalties uh, against crime. No, they're so like they, going you know, all in for the criminals. Like they're like, OK, we see all the crime and we're going to side with these people. And it's it's mind blowing. And some of my very lefty D.C. friends are complaining about it constantly on social media. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> I think there's a lesson here. But also, if you're going to come to Virginia, if you're going to escape to Virginia, uh, think about your voting patterns. I, I kind of bring that up half jokingly all the time. But I mean, it is ugly. It's getting worse. Congresswoman assaulted in her own building. Uh, it's scary stuff. And I suspect if the Republicans can frame this 
properly and sort of nationalize the issue, uh, it would benefit them because, I mean, again, we're talking a lot about outcomes in this segment. These are outcomes that speak for themselves. Got to leave it there. Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News contributor. Josh, as always, appreciate it. Talk soon. Thanks, Guy. We'll be right back right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show, you've all heard of the White House Correspondents' Dinner. There's a Congressional Correspondents' Dinner as well in D.C. I was at one, I think once or twice. They usually have lawmakers from each party that get up there and poke fun at the other side, at their own side. I was just recently at an event with Nancy Mace, Republican of South Carolina, member of the House, and she told me, I'm the Republican this year. She was working on some material. She got some laughs last night. Cut 22. I know George Santos hoped to deliver tonight's keynote, but organizers are lovely, beautiful organizers, wanted someone who could tell a joke, but not actually be one. <laughs> Come on, George, you've given Republicans a bad name, and that's Lauren Boebert's job. <laughs> Just kidding, Lauren, don't shoot. <laughs> I mean, really, like, who lies about, being a, about playing college volleyball? Like, who does that? If you're gonna lie, at least make it about something big. Like you actually won the 2020 presidential election. So uh, some, some zingers there from Nancy Mace. I think the Democrat was Senator Raphael Warnock. I don't know how he did. Doesn't strike me as uh, the funniest dude, but maybe I'm wrong. At that same event where I hung out a bit with Nancy Mace, another member of Congress was also there, Kat Kamak of florida she will be our guest when we come back in a brand new hour of the guy benson show that is straight ahead broadcasting live in charlotte north carolina today so glad you're with us please stay tuned From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. Always appreciate you listening however you listen. GuyBensonShow.com, again, our website. Fox News alert as we begin in this middle hour. The Dow tumbling again, down 248 points today, closing out at 33,700 even. Joining us now, Congresswoman Kat Kamak. She is the congressman for Florida's 3rd Congressional District. She's a small business owner, graduate of the U.S. Navy War College, and most importantly, a new minted friend of mine, because we hung out a little bit last weekend at an event. It was great to meet you, Congresswoman. Welcome to the show, and welcome back, I guess, now that we actually know each other. <laughs> well, thanks for having me back, Guy. It was such a blast hanging out with you. And the, the, the stocks aren't the only thing that's tumbling right now. It's also the Democrats' uh, credibility, because I just stepped out of a hearing, and wow. Okay, what do you mean by that? I know this is the subcommittee on weaponization of the federal government. Uh, you you summarize what you've seen so far in one word. What's the wow factor here? Well, it's amazing how it, you know if a Republican speaks out on government abuses, uh, it's a conspiracy theory, and they you know demand that we all wear tinfoil hats. Uh, but when a Democrat does it. 
that is good oversight. That is constitutional oversight. So uh, it doesn't seem that they care much about the content, just more about who the messenger is. And so uh, as to be expected, despite the fact that we have repeatedly pointed to abuses against Republicans and Democrats, everyday citizens, um, they seem pretty content on making this about uh, a conspiracy theory going down a rabbit hole. And most importantly, they want to rehash January 6th and go down a path of bashing President Donald Trump. That's that's all they want to do. So uh, I think for for the beginning of this this select committee on government weaponization, you're going to see Republicans really paint the picture of what the reality of today is. You know, the warrantless data collection on everyday Americans through a litany of federal agency FISA. Uh, court abuses, uh, of course, parents being targeted by the DOJ after colluding with a private entity, um, you know, having the FBI label parents concerned about their kids' education as domestic terrorists, despite the fact that uh, you don't have a statute that defines domestic terrorism. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's, it's kind of strange, but uh, it, it's been a wild first day, and there's going to be a lot more to come. Well, I think a lot of it's predictable. It's just sort of like, look over here. We don't want to talk about that. We're going to call you guys crazy. And look, there are conspiracies on the right and the left. There are also things that are true that get called conspiracies that are not. And as evidence mounts that something isn't a conspiracy theory that's actually real, the people invested in the notion that it's not real, I think, get very defensive. And look, with all due respect to some of these Democrats, I thought January 6th was very terrible. I've been extremely critical of it, critical of former President Trump. We also had impeachment hearings on this in both houses of Congress. We had the January 6th committee. That has been discussed ad nauseum over and over again. To try to turn this into that seems like they just don't really want to talk about some of the examples that you're offering here. And I hate to sound this cynical about them, but I think at least in some cases, Congresswoman, these Democrats want to deflect away because they support the the weaponization of the federal government against political enemies. And so they don't like people talking about it or calling it out, which is why they try to pretend like, you know, you and I are the crazy ones for noticing stuff. Yeah, exactly, because we know that the, the leftist agenda is nothing more than dependency and control. You grow the size of government, you make people dependent on big government programs, and then they maintain control. And part of that control apparatus is the data collection. It is government bureaucrats in every aspect of your life, whether through arrest, through uh, health care and HHS, whether it is um, through your children's education, through the Department of Education. They want to have a, a finger in every single pot. And so this is just one more extension of that. But I think we can we can absolutely show and we will show over the next two years how government does not function when it is big and bloated with nameless, faceless bureaucrats that basically have taken on lawmaking authority. Mm-hmm. It works best when it is limited in size and scope, when people actually are able to hold those bureaucrats and their elected officials accountable. People deserve transparency, and I think you and I talked about this last weekend. You know, there is a real crisis in terms of faith in this institution, this constitutional republic, and so this is our opportunity to show that we're serious about taking that look inward and holding people accountable, getting rid of the rot within these federal agencies. Um, and I think it's critical work that eventually the Democrats will have to come along and say, you know what, we've got to do this. 
I do want to ask you, we have a few minutes left here, in terms of your role, not just on this committee, but I would say especially on this committee, the Democrats kind of think it's illegitimate and ridiculous. Sometimes, let's be honest, Republicans do use their perch on committees or in various, you know, media relationships to go out and they kind of look a little kooky and they grandstand and they take the opportunity to try to go viral rather than, you know, actually doing the job and being, you know, more, I guess the cliche is a workhorse versus a show horse. I guess sometimes certain Republicans make it easier for the Democrats to dismiss the overall work through various antics or whatever. As you prepare yourself to go into meetings like this and and hearings like this, what is your mentality to try to avoid that and to try to actually get something done? Well, you know, I think you and I have talked about this before. I I am leaning in 100% in destroying the angertainment machine that has been created up here in Washington, D.C. And by angertainment, I I think it's pretty self-explanatory. But, you know, you go out there, you say something um, extraordinarily uh, vitriolic or, uh, you know, you raise your voice and you do the theatrics for, you know, that that clip on social media or you put out that tweet um, that, that is very edgy, not for the purposes of advancing good policy, but because that raises you money or, you know, mm-hmm. it, it raises your profile. Because let's face it, a lot of a lot of elements of Washington, D.C. have turned into a reality show. So much of that is because people are not educated about the process. And so my job is to really lay out the facts and be very diligent in my word, in how we're presenting this evidence, how we're laying out the case. So a lot of that is education of how the process works, first and foremost. And then, and the then also just like it. showing your own example in this, too, which I think is what you're doing here. You're modeling it, which I really appreciate. It's why we want to have you back on the show. We try not to do angertainment here either. So I guess we're kindred spirits there. You know, we're not perfect, but we try. Kat Kamek, Republican of Florida, on The Guy Benson Show. Got to run. We'll be right back. Back to the hearings for her. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Disney in the news this week as they've announced 7,000 layoffs. They had some major losses financially in recent days and months. They're also rolling out some announcements on upcoming projects, including more sequels. Toy Story, I think it's now Toy Story 5. I didn't realize there was a Toy Story 4. I thought they called it quits after Toy Story 3. That was my understanding. I liked all three of those movies. I guess they did a prequel, and now there's going to be yet another one. So Toy Story 5, Frozen's getting a follow-on film, Zootopia as well. So people taking notice of this stuff. There was also a viral clip that was shooting all over social media of a Disney property, a Disney show, which is a reboot, apparently, of a show called The Proud Family. And it was just, like, straight up... CRT, systemic racism, racial identity indoctrination on this cartoon show, which is, of course, aimed at kids. And it wasn't, like, slightly subtle, and you had to really read between the lines to get a sense of what they were trying to put in kids' heads. It was right there, unambiguous, in your face. Here's an example from the show. This is a Disney show, Cut 15. 
This country was built on slavery, which means slaves built this country. Tilled this land from sea to sea to sea. First it was rice, tobacco, sugar cane. Then Whitney did his thing and cotton became king. And we were its soldiers. Four million strong. Fighting for America's freedoms, even though we remained America's slaves. slaves. Built this country. The descendants of slaves continue to build this. Slaves built this country. And we, the descendants of slaves in America, have earned reparations for their suffering. And continue to earn reparations every moment we spend submerged in the systemic prejudice, racism, and white supremacy that America was founded with and still has not atoned for. Whoa. Okay. I mean, you can make the case that slaves absolutely helped build this country, and there were grave injustices, terrible human rights abuses. Right? Some of those points are fair, and then they pivot into reparations, saying that people in this country living now in 2023 have, quote, earned reparations for the suffering of others in the past and, quote, earn reparations every moment we spend submerged in the systemic prejudice, racism and white supremacy was founded with and is still not atoned for. I mean, I think there was maybe some atoning done in the Civil War with a huge amount of blood spilled over this issue and then the progress that has been made steadily ever since on racial equality. I mean, to pretend like we haven't atoned for any of this or grappled with it and therefore we need reparations and referring yet again to this country as rooted in systemic bigotry and racism and white supremacy. I mean, you heard it, right? That is a kid's show on Disney. And then later in that same clip, they kind of make the argument sort of half make the argument that Lincoln didn't really free the slaves, if you think about it. Cut 16. We had Tubman, Turner, Frederick D. Then they say Lincoln freed the slaves. But slaves were men. And women. And only we can free ourselves. Emancipation, Emancipation is not freedom. freedom. Jim Crow, segregation, redlining, public schools, feeding private prisons, where we become slaves again. As we celebrate Juneteenth for, for the, the umpteenth time, our account is still outstanding. Because this country was built on slavery, which means slaves built this country. Okay, um, they can say that the emancipation of the slaves was not a full freeing of the slaves. I guess that's the point there, but Lincoln did do that. It was a very big deal. I'm not sure why they decided to sort of run down Lincoln there, aside from he was like one of the white faces in the montage they were talking about. It's just a strange choice, and they throw in private prisons today as a form of slavery and then return to the demands for racial reparations. Now, let me add one more clip to this conversation. One of the leaders, one of the people responsible for this show, bringing this show to the Disney audience, children, is a woman named Latoya Ravenel. And she was publicly on a Zoom call, I guess it was a Disney function, talking about the Proud family. She's the executive producer of the show. And... She was boasting about other elements of her agenda that she has injected into this programming. Cut 17. The showrunners were super welcoming. Meredith Roberts and like the, the our leadership over there has been so welcoming to like my like not at all secret gay agenda. And so like I, I feel like maybe it was that way in the past, but I guess like something must have happened in the last like like they are turning it around. They're going hard. And then all that like momentum that I felt like that sense of, I don't have to be afraid to like 
let's have these two characters kiss let's in the background this like i was just wherever i could just basically adding queerness to like the, if you see anything queer in the show i'm proud of them but like I, I just was like no one would stop me i was just wherever i could just basically adding queerness if you see anything queer in the show i was just like no one could stop me okay I right, look i'm gay I'm totally unashamed of that. I talk about it openly. It's just part of my life. I think having conversations with kids at a certain age about sexuality is appropriate. Earlier than that, it is inappropriate, and we've had some debates about that in the public space recently involving some legislation. I really don't think it is helpful to the discourse, to our culture, to any of it, to have people like this sort of giddy, about the not-so-secret agenda inserting queerness all over the place. I mean, just it just reeks of an agenda. Now, I will say this. Disney is a company that can make its own decisions. They can put stuff out there. We can notice. We can talk about it. I don't think this stuff should be outlawed, whatever Disney wants to do. There might be some blowback. Parents might not be happy. People might question some of these decisions. I'm not asking for anyone to be canceled. I will pose this question, however. If Disney is shoveling that stuff, you know, the queer agenda, to use her own phrase, and reparations based on our white supremacist culture, if that's what Disney is putting in one of their cartoons targeted at an audience of kids, what makes you think that their ideological allies, the friends of LaToya Ravineau and these other Disney executives who are pushing this stuff, what makes you think that their friends and allies, their comrades in the education space and bureaucracy, like this is pop culture, this is entertainment, on the education side, we know there are hardcore leftists devoted to exactly these same ideas. What makes you think that they're not, in an insidious way, filtering this stuff into curricula, into schools through CRT and other things. Of course they are. It's this double-faced thing that they do, this dance that they attempt, where they claim that we are crazy for noticing when that type of racial poison, for example, is thrown in the faces of middle schoolers, elementary schoolers, high schoolers. Like These are minors in taxpayer-funded schools. They say it's not happening. It's a fever dream. We're making it up. Then when there's incontrovertible evidence that they are doing this stuff, they kind of just shift to saying, oh, actually, it's good. Actually, that's good, and that's important, and we're making progress. Right? It's a form of their gaslighting. And if they're doing it this brazenly in this context, you can bet there are people that are on the same page ideologically behind these agendas who absolutely are determined to indoctrinate and inculcate the same stuff in schools. That's why it's important, I think, for public policymakers to be aware, eyes open on this stuff. Which is why, even though I have some misgivings about what's happening on this front with Disney down in Florida, and maybe we'll ask Senator Rick Scott about that coming up later, it's why a lot of conservatives hear stuff like this from Governor Ron DeSantis and say, yeah, someone has to do something. Cut 14. 
Disney is going to pay its fair share of taxes, and Disney is going to honor the debt, and that's exactly what this proposed piece of legislation will do. When we first went down this road last spring, a lot of folks in the media were saying that, oh, my gosh, Disney's actually going to pay less taxes, and Floridians are going to pay more taxes. They were saying that. Well, this puts that to bed. This is obviously now going to be controlled by the state of Florida which is no longer self-governing for them. So there's a new sheriff in town, and that's just the way it's going to be. Agree or disagree, there are people who listen to that, and you can hear in the background applause, people nodding their heads. You listen to some of the clips that I just played for you. It's not a mystery why that might be the case, why people might be feeling that way. The Guy Benson Show returns after this break. Don't go anywhere. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. I have to tell you, I read a story today that sort of froze me in place. It was published at the Free Press, which is Barry Weiss's outfit. It's written by a woman who worked inside a pediatric gender clinic in St. Louis for years. And before we get into her testimony and what she is blowing the whistle on, I just want to say this. This is a tricky, thorny issue set, trans issues. There are landmines everywhere. Often, if you ask any questions or offer any criticism of anything that deviates from the activist left perspective, you are reflexively referred to including in the news media, as a transphobe and pushing an anti-LGBT agenda. That is the go-to move. Now, I think that there are some people out there who are transphobic. I think there is bigotry. I support treating human beings with dignity and respect. The golden rule comes to mind. I also think that trans activists sort of the hardcore ones who are very loud, very aggressive, do their own cause a disservice a lot of the time by being so shrill, so unreasonable, so demanding that the rest of society alter the way that we think, the way that we talk, the meaning of words. I think it's counterproductive. And often it seems as though their position, their tactics involve anger, intimidation, cancellation. We told you a story in Woke Tales recently about a woman who was canceled, fired from her job because one of these mobs came for her because she liked Harry Potter and wasn't going to denounce J.K. Rowling because I guess she's public enemy number one on the transphobic quote-unquote list. Right When this is how you go about enforcing your orthodoxy, you are going to alienate a lot of people, including some people who are at least to an extent sympathetic to your cause. People don't want to be screamed at and called names and lose their jobs. And yet it's that blunt force object that they use over and over again to bludgeon people, usually actually into silence, if not compliance. I don't think that's good. I don't think that's helpful. And that's just on regular trans issues. 
when it comes to children, the gender dysphoria of children, the desire, real or imagined, of minors to transition, involving life-altering, body-altering, permanent changes, like surgeries, amputations, very serious medications and procedures and treatments that have massive side effects. When we're talking about kids, not adults, kids, I think that the questions that need to be asked are barely being asked at all in a lot of places because people are scared. People don't want to feel like they are imposing judgments on other people and wading into something that they don't fully understand. The problem is it turns out that the so-called experts who are hardcore advocates of this vast experimentation on a bunch of kids, they don't understand what's actually going on either. They're making it up as they go along. It is not science. This is why there have been a couple leading transgender practitioners of that area of care and medicine who themselves are trans, who have spoken out with deep concern about the way this is going, especially involving kids. It's why some countries in ultra-socially progressive Western Europe are slamming the brakes and reversing course on this very phenomenon because of the lack of medicine, because of the lack of science, because of the lack of ethics and evidence surrounding all of it. There was a prominent clinic in the U.K. that was recently closed because of this. In Scandinavia, they have decided, the government saying, okay, no, this has gone way too far. But here in the United States, it's a brave new world. Kids are sort of caught in this crossfire. Kids who have self-image issues and far worse, mental health issues and other things, who are now cannon fodder in this culture war. And there are people pursuing an agenda, and that's what it is, an agenda, ideological, cultural, political, whatever you want to call it, that seems to be doing a great deal of harm, just stumbling around in the darkness, because that's what they want to do in furtherance of the agenda. And it almost seems as though the well-being of children, the best practices, the actual evidence and the science, all afterthoughts. Which brings us to this story. It's an essay in the free press. And it's written by a woman named Jamie Reed. Here's the headline. I thought I was saving trans kids. Now I'm blowing the whistle. There are more than 100 pediatric gender clinics across the United States. I worked at one. What's happening to children is morally and medically appalling. So this woman begins right out of the gate, I think she felt like she had to, with a long list of her progressive left-wing bona fides and her identity politics bona fides. She says, I'm a 42-year-old St. Louis native, a queer woman, and politically to the left of Bernie Sanders. So this is a queer woman who is way out there on the socialist left. She says, my worldview has deeply shaped my career. I have spent my professional life providing counseling to vulnerable populations, children in foster care, sexual minorities, and the poor. 
She writes, all that led me to a job in 2018 as a case manager at the Washington University Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital, which had been established a year earlier. The center's working assumption was that the earlier you treat kids with gender dysphoria, the more anguish you can prevent later on. This premise was shared by the doctors and therapists at the center, and given their expertise, I assumed that abundant evidence backed this consensus. During the four years I worked at the clinic as a case manager, I was responsible for patient intake and oversight. Around a 1,000 distressed young people came through our doors. The majority of them received hormone prescriptions that can have life-altering consequences, including sterility. I left the clinic in November of last year because I could no longer participate in what was happening there. By the time I departed, she writes, I was certain that the way the American medical system is treating these patients is the opposite of the promise we make to do no harm. Instead, we are permanently harming the vulnerable patients in our care. And this is where she explains that she wasn't sure she wanted to speak out. People were advising her not to for the reasons and based on the effects that I was just describing myself a moment ago, the intimidation, the silencing. She writes, I'm speaking out, I'm doing so knowing how toxic the public conversation is around this highly contentious issue and the ways that my testimony might be misused. I'm doing so knowing that I'm putting myself at serious personal and professional risk. Almost everyone in my life advised me to keep my head down, but I cannot in good conscience do so because what is happening to scores of children is far more important than my comfort. And what is happening to them is morally and medically appalling. So then she starts getting into some of the meat of her issue and what she has seen, what she has personally witnessed. She writes, at first, the patient population was tipped toward what used to be the traditional instance of a child with gender dysphoria, a boy, quite often young, who wanted to present as and who wanted to be a girl. Until 2015 or so, a very small number of these boys comprised the population of pediatric gender dysphoria cases. Then, across the Western world, there began to be a dramatic increase in a new population, teenage girls, many with no previous history of gender distress, suddenly declared they were transgender and demanded immediate treatment with testosterone. I certainly saw this at the center. One of my jobs was to do intake for new patients and their families. When I started there, there were probably 10 such calls a month. When I left, there were 50. And about 70% of the new patients were girls. Sometimes clusters of girls arrived from the same high school. This concerned me, but I didn't feel I was in a position to sound some kind of alarm back then. There was a team of about eight of us, and only one other person brought up these kinds of questions I had. Anyone who raised doubts ran the risk of being called, there it is, a transphobe. The girls who came to us had many comorbidities and issues, depression, anxiety, ADHD, eating disorders, obesity. Many were diagnosed with autism or had autism-like symptoms. We had patients who said that they had Tourette syndrome, but they didn't. That they had tic disorders, but they didn't. That they had multiple personalities, but they didn't. Some doctors privately recognize these false diagnoses as a manifestation of social contagion. People hearing about 
disorders or other issues and just deciding that's what they have. And then walking in and saying, this is what I want. Minors, children. Reed explains the ease with which minors could begin the process of transitioning. It is staggering. Quote, to begin transitioning, the girls needed a letter of support from a therapist, usually one we recommended, who they only had to see once or twice to get the green light. To make it more efficient for the therapist, we offered them a template for how to write a letter in support of transition. The next stop was a single visit to the endocrinologist for a testosterone prescription. That's all it took. When a female takes testosterone, the profound and permanent effects of the hormone can be seen in a matter of months. Voices drop, beards sprout, body fat is redistributed, sexual interest explodes, aggression increases, mood can be unpredictable. Our patients were told about some side effects, including sterility, but after working at the center, I came to believe that teenagers are simply not capable of fully grasping what it means to make the decision to become infertile while still a minor. We don't let people this age buy cigarettes. We don't let people this age vote. But we're saying like, hey, here's a quick commercial about some side effects. Shall we begin these life-altering treatments? And they've got a little pipeline that they've set up, so the answer is going to be yes. Ms. Reed writes of the place that she worked, the center downplayed negative consequences, emphasized the need for transition. The center's website said, left untreated, gender dysphoria has any number of consequences from self-harm to suicide. But when you take away the gender dysphoria by allowing a child to be who or she is, we're noticing that goes away. But Reed says there are no reliable studies showing this. Right? That's what they're putting on the website. That's what they're telling kids and their families. But there aren't reliable studies to back it up. She lists a number of examples of horrible instances. It's difficult to read. You can read it yourself. I won't get into some of the most graphic stuff, but it is pretty shocking. She talks about how one mother comes in and says, oh, yeah, my daughter's uh, kind of a tomboy. So let's start this transition process. And they say, well, that doesn't seem like quite enough. And then sure enough, a few weeks later, the mother has learned all the correct things to say and figured out what they have to present to then say, okay, this is real. So they checked all the boxes and then the transition began over the strenuous objections of the girl's father. Because you get one parent on board, that's all it takes. She also says parental rights overall are just undermined throughout this whole process. She's seen that as well. Does that sound familiar? I've got a break, but we're not through with this yet. Stay with us through this quick break, and we will continue this conversation on the other side. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show, we are reading at length from a piece called I Thought I Was Saving Trans Kids, Now I'm Blowing the Whistle by Jamie Reed. She goes on to explain the growing phenomenon of desisting and then another one, detransitioning, people who are going through the process who suddenly abruptly stop or people who have gone through the process who then want to reverse it with regret. She talks in this piece heartbreakingly about a young woman who had gone through all of this then realized, no, actually, I am a woman, telling a nurse, 
I want my breasts back. Well, that's not an option. Reed says at some point she felt a medical and moral obligation to do something, so she spoke up within her office. The result of that was retaliation. She started to get negative performance reviews. At one point, it came to a head she had raised some issues in person, and an administrator who was in charge told the people asking questions, quote, we had to get on board or get out. They said, stop questioning the medicine and the science, even though the very question was, is this the medicine and the science? The response, again, get on board or get out. Reed says, I came across comments from Dr. Rachel Levine, a transgender woman who is a high official at the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. The article said Levine, U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health, said that clinics are proceeding carefully and that no American children are receiving drugs or hormones for gender dysphoria who shouldn't. She writes, I felt stunned and sickened. It wasn't true. And I know that from deep firsthand experience. So I started writing down everything I could about my experience at the Transgender Center. Two weeks ago, she says, I brought my concerns and documents to the attention of Missouri's Attorney General. He is a Republican. I am a progressive. But the safety of children should not be a matter for our culture wars. She says there's a lack of rigorous standards around this stuff. There's a lot of secrecy around it. There's been an explosion of the phenomenon. In the past 15 years, the U.S. has gone from having zero pediatric gender clinics to more than 100, and it keeps growing. She points out what I did, which is some clinics are being shut down, and some of this so-called medicine is being curbed and reversed, even in European countries. Earlier, I described this as a mass-scale experiment, sort of flying blind on our students on our kids. And Ms. Reed said that's actually not fair. She said the word experiment shouldn't be used. Why not? Quote, experiments are supposed to be carefully designed. Hypotheses are supposed to be tested ethically. The doctors I worked alongside at the Transgender Center frequently said about the treatment of our patients, we are building a plane while we are flying it. She writes, no person should be a passenger on that kind of aircraft. I think that she deserves real credit for coming forward. She's going to catch hell for this. Shame on anyone who tries to shut her down or silence her, but you know that's coming. These are conversations that have to happen. It's not just okay to talk about it. It's vital. Which is why this woman, Ms. Reed, has done a public service, in my view. And which is why I brought it to you, hopefully in a way that is respectful and reasonable but i wasn't going to look away and avoid it because it's tricky not here it's the guy benson show final hour coming up next it's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world washington dc it's time for the guy benson show happy hour sponsored by the finnish long drink finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to america visit the and now here's your host guy benson
It is the happy hour on this Thursday from Charlotte, North Carolina today. It is the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. That final hour now, 5 to 6, is the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious. Very refreshing. Also alcoholic, so we always remind you to please drink responsibly. It's for 21 plus only that age range. TheLongDrink.com is their website. Find out where they're sold as they expand. Probably near you now. You can also order online, thelongdrink.com. Our website here at the show, guybensonshow.com. My name, guybensonshow.com. You can also follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. We always like to remind you that the podcast is free every single day, on demand, when the show is over. With us now is U.S. Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida. And, Senator, welcome back to the show. Guy, this is unbelievable. I put out a plan to rescue the country, and the president is printing it out with your tax dollars and giving it to everybody. This is the greatest thing in the world. I would never would have imagined. <laughs> so why do you think he's doing that? I mean, obviously he thinks there's some political opportunity here. There's some uh, political gain for him to highlight some of your proposals. Does that give you any pause if the Democrats feel like, hey, this is good fodder for us? No. So here's here's what I said. All right. I in my plan, I said we ought to look at all of our every program we have every five years. And if it's worth keeping, we'll keep it. And I said that what we ought to be doing is making sure that we tell the American public how we're going to preserve Social Security and Medicare, because I believe in that. I'm, I'm not going to reduce benefits for Social Security and Medicare. So here's a guy that's trying to say, oh, no, this guy wants to reduce Medicare benefits or Social Security benefits. Well, here's what's crazy. He did this just a few months ago in, in the so-called uh, Inflation Reduction Act. He cut $280 billion out of Medicare. Right? And when he was in the Senate, he proposed a bill to actually you know, shut down all these things. And he said, here's his quote when he's in the Senate. When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare, Medicaid, Veterans Benefit. I meant every single solitary thing in, in the government. So – Here's a guy that wants to cut these things and then suggesting that somebody like I want to cut them when I've never said we would ever cut them. I'm saying we got to we got to look at all the other wasteful programs so we can continue to preserve Social Security and Medicare. So he's either lying or clueless. Might be both. OK, so so just to clarify here, because I know you've proposed sunsetting programs, but they would just have to be reauthorized every X number of years. I know that Biden himself in the Senate had proposed something very similar years ago when he was first there. So, you know, like 100 years ago, Uh, eventually it seems like he's abandoned that idea. And what I think what he was trying to do in the State of the Union was to say, see, there are some Republicans who have proposed sunsetting in people's minds. That means ending these programs. I guess the question would be, Rather than even using that mechanism, the sunsetting or reauthorization mechanism, because obviously that can be easily politically exploited, right? They can just they can distort it and twist it, which is what he tried to do. Why not talk about reform instead? Because the math I'm I'm with you on this. The math requires reforming these programs. People like me, my age and younger, we're not going to see these programs existing as they currently exist. They're going to be, you know, bankrupt, insolvent. Massive cuts will have to come if we don't get out in front of this thing. It just feels like 
very few people in Washington are serious about that. Like, I agree we shouldn't be doing it in the context of the debt ceiling negotiation. That's, I think, why Republicans were so mad at the president for making that claim during the State of the Union. But on a separate track, I actually think you and I probably agree. The math is what it is. And burying our heads in the sand isn't actually going to help improve anything. And this is not about hurting or changing things for current seniors. It's about preserving the programs for future ones, right? That's sort of where I come down on this. Well, guy, here's the way I look at it. When I became governor of Florida, we, we were in a tailspin. The economy was really bad. We lost 800,000 jobs. And, you know, you, there's programs that the public would like to keep. You can't do that if you don't have a good economy. So what I focused on was, first off, how do you grow your economy, which will grow your revenues? So I cut taxes and fees 100 times, and guess what happened? My revenues skyrocketed, so I could have record funding for all these programs. If I was if I was sitting in the presidency, what I would be talking about right now is how do we start growing this economy? You grow the economy by reducing you know the regulations you don't need. You could reduce every tax and fee you don't need. You streamline the permitting process. If you do that, our revenues are going to grow. And you can't think about this. You can you can balance the budget. If we just went back to pre-pandemic spending. We would have a balanced budget right now. I mean, that's how much our, our expenses have just exploded in the last three years. And, and the COVID is not with us today. So why did all these costs explode? We would have a balanced budget. So in, in, 20, in 2019, we spent about $4.4 trillion, right? right? We're going to collect somewhere between 4.6 and $4.9 trillion. What, what costs so much more money? There's some inflation, got it. There's a little bit of population growth, got it. So that would cause some of it to go up. But think about this. What if we got everybody back to work? So I have a bill all right, that says that if you're able-bodied, you don't have dependent children, dependent adults in your family, you're not going to be on a government program. Right? You can't get any unless you're willing to work. I, that's what the approach I took. I took the number of unemployment in Florida – from 900,000 to 61,000 eight years by getting people jobs. Didn't hit, kick people off. I took the number of welfare down to 71,000 people out of 22 million by getting people jobs. If we do that, guess what happens? We have less costs, less food stamps, less public housing, all these programs, and our revenues grow, our taxes increase. So that's Look, what I'm, I'm with you. Focus- I mean, it's, it's a growth model, and Almost everything that you just said, I completely agree with, and I think most conservatives would. And you can point to your record in Florida. You can just look at, you know, the basic, you know, uh, lessons of of economics, and we're in agreement. I guess the political question is, when you put out some of these plans, and we remember this before the midterms where the Democrats were waving around the piece of paper saying, oh, look, you know, this Republican, and then they sort of projected it onto your whole party, this Republican wants to raise taxes for uh, poor and working people based on this one proposal. And you then had to clarify, uh, that's not what I meant. The Republicans had to say, we're not going to do that. Similar thing here with the reauthorization provision or the sunset provision on these big popular programs that people are scared about. I mean, it just feels like sometimes I wonder if it makes sense to hand what is clearly going to be used as a political weapon to the Democrats to then club you guys with it based on some stuff in a document when the growth agenda that you're describing here seems like the the stuff that works and also sort of the terrain that is a lot less politically attackable. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. But he, here's the way I look at it. What's our job? 
Our job is to go out and promote ideas and sell them. The Democrats are always going to lie about us. I mean, they, they, they lie about me all, from the time I got into my first race in 2010. They've been lying about me the whole time. Think about this last election. They lied about the Republican position on abortion. All right. So the, they're going to lie. So our job is, is to say, hey, this is what we're going to do. Right? This is why you should support us. I'm, that's what I did. I had a seven-step plan to 700,000 jobs in 2010. I'm a business guy. When I went to the bank, I said, here's what I'd like to you know, get money for. I had a very specific plan, and I had to go sell it. I'm fine. Look, I believe in what I'm saying. I, I believe this is the right thing to do for this country. We've got to rescue this country. So when the president puts out this, I mean, he, you know, well, here's what the benefit from my standpoint. People are going to read it. They're going to read that I believe kids ought to say the Pledge of Allegiance, stand for the flag. We're going to quit asking people to color their skin on a government forum. So we stop this, you know, separating people by race. I'm very happy with what I put out. And but I tell everybody, put out what you believe. Let's all go fight about what we believe. What what are the what I'm trying to preserve Medicare and Social Security's by and what's Biden doing? He's saying spend until we can't borrow any more money and then we for sure are gonna have to cut Medicare and Social Security. I'm gonna Oh yeah, they're, I mean they're I just they're just like fight. pedal to the metal, shove down the accelerator and just fly off the cliff. That's their plan. You're putting out different ideas. You're calling attention to the math. I appreciate that. This has to be done. I agree with you that often the left and the Democrats are going to distort and lie and misrepresent, um, and that's inevitable, and being ready to fight back and sell your ideas is, you know, politics 101. I just think also Republicans need to be smart about not making it easier for Democrats to lie in politically damaging ways. That's my only point here. Now, I want to broaden it out, though, Senator. State of the Union, I saw you in the audience a few times, shots of you. What were your, aside from the moment that we've been discussing where he was basically, you know, using something that you proposed to attack Republicans and people were heckling back at him and that whole big moment, what were some of your other big takeaways from that speech when you walked out of the chamber that night? What was what was on your mind? Here's what I so when I when I went there, I thought so I did say the state addresses every year when I was governor for eight years. And so when I went there, I said, this is a problem. This is my solution. So let's think about what this guy did. We know inflation is a problem. There's no plan for inflation. We know gas prices are too high and, and he's hurt in their energy independence. No idea. Fentanyl. No idea. Um, you know, he's, he says some things on fentanyl, which, which I, I have a bill, some bills to do that. Will he talk to me about it? Will anything happen? No. Will he secure the border? Will he fight about political prisoners being stuck in, uh, in Cuba? I mean, you look at all the problems we have, right? And he, he doesn't address them. It's like, it's like he just sits there and thinks, this is great. I got to be the title of president, but I don't want to have to do any work. We know people in all sorts of positions of life. They just want titles. That's what this guy's like. No, there was no there, there. There's no solution that came out of this stuff. No ideas. Let's fight over them. Let's fight over ideas. I'm fine. I, I said, I, I will love to debate Biden on, on Social Security and Medicare. If he, if he is, he is so, he's so, so comfortable with his position, debate me. I'll be glad to do it. I'll go sell my ideas. If I can't, it's my fault. I do think it's interesting that you said, you know, as you were wondering to yourself, will he secure the border? Not only will he not secure the border, clearly, he barely even mentioned the border in what was it like an hour and 10 minute speech. He barely mentioned the border. Governor Scott, Senator Scott, I gave that first title first because, as you've said several times, you were the chief executive 
in the Sunshine State. I wanted to get your reaction to this story based on a new policy being proposed in Tallahassee. This is from the Associated Press. Governor Ron DeSantis would take control over the board of a special governing district Walt Disney World operates in Florida under a bill introduced this week. Republican leaders in the State House, in coordination with DeSantis, have begun a special legislative session to restructure the Reedy Creek Improvement District as the Disney government is now known. The proposal would largely leave the district and its abilities intact, but change its name to the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District and require the governor to appoint a five-member oversight board. Members previously were named through entities controlled by Disney. So what the governor and his team will say in Republicans in Florida is Disney's gotten out of control. They're weighing in in Florida politics. They've had these amazing tax breaks and autonomy forever, and we think that it's not really fair anymore. They've got to pay their fair share, and the state government needs to reassert some authority. Critics will say, well, okay, fair enough. You might not like some of the moves Disney's making, and maybe they have gotten this sweetheart deal, but is this political retribution against a company for speaking out on politics, and is this not an encroachment of the government telling a private company kind of what it has to do in trying to exert more control over that company? You were the governor of that state. You're familiar with this arrangement with Disney that lasted for decades. What do you think of this new bill? I haven't seen the bill. I think Disney made a big mistake by weighing in um, and, and taking the position on a bill that was a good bill. We shouldn't be teaching grade school kids about sex. It's, it's, to me, it's as simple as that, and I don't know why they did that. With regard to the, the taxing districts, I, what, I, what I'd like to have a better understanding on is, is separately on that, what, is what's going to change? Um, the, I mean, what, you know, what, what is the... Um, What's the purpose? What's the? How's the board going to do things differently? Is it going to impact? Uh, how's it going to impact the counties? How's it going to impact the cities? So I, I'd like I want before, you know, they pass it. I'd, I'd just like to have a better idea of what they're going to be doing uh, that's going to impact, you know, these counties and cities because it all, you know, they all, you know, these taxing districts and there, there's a variety of taxing districts around the state. They provide services that the counties and cities don't. So I'd like to have a better idea what what they're going to be changing with regard to that so yeah no i think that's fair enough i think that's totally fair enough and and i'm sort of a mixed mind on it i see both sides of the issue that's why i asked the question and you're from that state you're very familiar with this stuff but not obviously with all the intricacies of the bill it was just proposed a couple days ago so it's something we'll keep an eye on u.s senator rick scott republican of florida our guest here on the guy benson show senator always enjoy the conversation and looking forward to next time come visit us in florida Always enjoy that as well. I've got a few trips planned, actually, next month and May, so can't wait. Rick Scott on The Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It is the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show and some very happy celebratory news in the Fox News family. We knew this was coming, but it was officially announced today that our colleagues Peter Ducey and his wife Hillary Vaughn have welcomed a baby girl into the world. Her name is Bridget. There's a write-up and a bunch of exclusive photos at People Magazine, a really nice piece about these new parents, first-time parents. And we've mentioned this a few times on the air before. Peter and Hillary live just blocks from us. They're neighbors of ours. 
So we see them from time to time. She's been pregnant now for months and clearly wasn't coming over for a lot of drinks and that sort of thing. But we'd see them around the neighborhood. Peter would sometimes swing by. And as the due date got closer and closer, just the excitement grew. And I found out, I think yesterday or the day before, that they had had the baby and they were waiting to make this announcement public. So we were holding off. And now here it is. And we are just absolutely thrilled for them. The daughter looks absolutely adorable. couple of the details, eight pounds, one ounce, Bridget Blake Ducey. She measures 21 inches. First baby for Hillary Vaughn, who's 32, and Peter Ducey, who's 35. And just a lot of smiling photos of the happy couple with their new child, including one where dad, Peter, is holding Bridget as his father, Steve Ducey, is on TV in the background doing his Fox and Friends stuff. So it's just terrific news. We're over the moon for all of the Ducey's. Congratulations to the parents. Congratulations to the grandparents. I was texting with Peter about it last night a little bit, and he was joking that he was sort of hoping that the labor would begin while he was in a White House briefing so he could dramatically announce that he had to go because his wife was having a baby. And... I made a joke about how Corinne Jean-Pierre might respond to that. Apparently, there's been some sort of cute back and forth with the White House and with Peter Ducey about this. They've been very nice about it, which is cool. The president, the press secretary, etc. So this is wonderful news. Perfect segment here on the happy hour. And we will have to personally congratulate Peter next time he joins us here on the air. For now... He definitely has his hands full. So good luck to them. And again, huge congratulations. The Guy Benson Show returns right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier today, back in our first hour on the program, Josh Krasauer joined us, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News contributor. Politics of the day with Josh. Always enjoy these conversations. Today, no exception. Here's part of it. Uh, Trump making that that point about people in his own cabinet who are thinking about running for president, who have announced perhaps that they're going to run for president. So he's singling DeSantis out on that one. And then the what you, I think, just alluded to is the below the belt situation. We talked about it here yesterday. Some people on Truth, uh, Truth Social trying to argue that Ron DeSantis is like a pedophile or a groomer of young girls because of some decades-old photo of him as a 20-something with, with allegedly high school students, and he's smiling, and they might have been at a party. It's unclear what kind of party. I mean, they just leapt to groomer and pedophile and all this stuff, and Trump himself was amplifying that stuff and basically tossing that out there. I did sort of muse on the air. I don't know where you go from there. If you've already emptied your clip that Ron DeSantis is a groomer of children by February of 2023, I'm not really sure how much lower you can get. Perhaps they'll, you know, they'll experiment on that stuff. But I'm here in North Carolina for an event, Josh. I was at the gym earlier, hotel gym, and against my will, the view came on. <laughs> um, and I sometimes describe that as a daily nationally televised insane asylum. And I never actually see it live. But there it was right in front of me when I was on you know, the equipment. And they, this was their lead story. Trump attacking DeSantis. DeSantis not really punching back, just saying his job is to focus on results for Floridians. His job is to fight the Democrats and Biden. He doesn't spend his time smearing other Republicans. And that got a big 
round of applause from the Republicans who were there in that crowd when DeSantis said it. The ladies of The View were talking about it, and I'll just say they seemed almost universally giddy that this was happening. Uh, They hate Trump, but they clearly are contemptuous of DeSantis. Uh, They were kind of egging Trump on in this stuff. And one of the points that they kept making was, you know, is DeSantis scared? And at some point you can try take the high road, but do you never respond to stuff in a meaningful way? You know, I'm not surprised that the lefties on The View are rooting for Trump over DeSantis for the same reason the Democrats are rooting for Trump over DeSantis in, the, in what would be a primary. But there is something to this argument that DeSantis will have to make a choice at some point. Obviously not yet. We're months away from him even maybe announcing but at some point, you would imagine he would have to engage beyond just like, you know, vague, high road, almost ignoring what Trump's saying and then just making passing oblique reference to it. Uh, unless I'm wrong, unless that's the game plan. I'm just not sure if that's going to work. Well, two things, Guy. Uh, first off, my hunch is that these attacks are not going to be particularly successful. They're, they're, they seem to be very below the belt, but not just that. They're, they're, you know, they're very, happening very early and they seem a little bit desperate. Um, and that, that's how Trump has looked in the first two months of, of his campaign, kind of desperate. Uh, I was in New Hampshire. The, the crowd was, was certainly supportive, but, but not overwhelmingly enthusiastic. Uh, a lot of people are looking for a different uh, nominee in 2024. And look, I, I, the second point you raise is, is, is the big question. There, there are a lot of questions, Guy, about how Ron DeSantis's appeal in Florida will translate nationally. Uh, it's no secret that he's seen as even among friends, can be a little bit prickly, doesn't have that um, kind of warmth that other Republicans that are in the field can often show. And look, traditionally, you, you've heard of the beer test. Who, who would you rather have a beer with? That's usually the person who wins the presidential uh, nomination or the presidential election. You know, I don't know if DeSantis it rates highly on that, on that beer test, and that's what a lot of uh, concerned Republicans have about DeSantis. Like, he clearly has captured the id. The, the enthusiasm, uh, and, the, and he knows the issues uh, that drive the Republican Party base, and he's governed in a way that reflects those values. Um, but, 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 you know, we don't know how he's going to perform in the Clegg lights of a national campaign, how well he's going to do at these town halls in New Hampshire and at these uh, coffee shops in Iowa. Uh, that's retail politics, and DeSantis has never really done retail politics uh, all that much. So, you know, that's why, I mean, I, I – I do think that there's an opportunity for – the other big question in this field is that how many Republicans are going to jump in. Uh, there, there's part, some Republicans think that there needs to be sort of an insurance policy because you don't really know how DeSantis is going to perform. And there are a lot of other good and talented conservative Republicans potentially in the mix. But there's another faction that is worried that there will be too many Republicans that get in and split each other's support and end up helping Trump end up getting the nomination again. So you know, there's a lot of volatility a lot of uncertainty. If DeSantis can perform, if he if he can kind of you know assuage the doubters out there that that don't are skeptical that he can perform politically at the national level, um, you know I think he'll do very well. I think he, he may end up being the favorite against Trump. But if, if he ends up faltering a little bit and these attacks stick, uh, then then we're in we're in sort of uncertain territory. Yeah, I, it could go any, any one of the it could go many different directions. My full interview with Josh Krasauer, along with all of today's show from start to finish, is available online totally free of charge when the show is over. That's on demand as usual, free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch, an interesting innovation in a longtime American leisure activity and pastime. Producer Christine is very angry about the development. I actually think it makes some sense. 
We will disagree and discuss right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch for the second consecutive day from Charlotte, North Carolina. Thank you so much for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website podcast, always free. So producer Christine has been uh, hot under the collar about this story all week. She keeps reminding us because we keep pushing it off because we've had other things to talk about, such as hot water heaters. But she really wanted to address this. And so we shall. Fox Business with a story about how AMC movie theaters, so one of the big chains, is moving to shift their pricing model, under which, in the revamped version, they will be charging moviegoers based on the seat locations in the theater. Right, So the prime seating, sort of in the middle, the places where you normally want to sit, those will cost more. And then the worst seats, and you know what I'm talking about, especially up front, if you're craning your neck or you're back in a corner or the angle isn't as good, those will be less expensive. And Christine is up in arms about this. Even though she's not really someone who even goes to the movies, so she's whining about something that doesn't really apply to her and something that she enjoys doing. I can understand why some people would say it's always been this way. You charge one ticket price and people can show up early or whatever, first come, first serve, you grab the seats. That's the way it's always been. So changing it, they don't like it. And frankly, as someone who doesn't like to get to the movies super early and who doesn't want to pay extra for better seats, who wants to pay more for something, right, this will probably annoy me down the line. I'll have to shell out a few more bucks or watch movies from a vantage point that I'd prefer not to, whatever. But from an economic standpoint, I'm actually surprised they haven't done this long ago. All right, I'm a capitalist, supply and demand. It makes sense that the best seats would cost more, because that's true in almost every other setting under which tickets are sold for an event where people gather in one place to watch something. I know some places do general admission, but that's rare. Think about sporting events, right? If you're going to go to a football game, 20th row on the 45-yard line is going to cost you a lot more than the upper deck in an end zone, right? Sitting in the neutral zone, 15 rows up, is going to be a much pricier hockey ticket than off in the corner somewhere or upstairs in the back. That's just the reality of pricing. Concerts, right? Front row tickets right in front of the performer where you get to see every facial expression and the sweat dripping down their face. That's going to cost you a lot more than being in the cheap seats. They're called the cheap seats for a reason. This also applies to in-person theater, right? Not movie theaters, but live theater. Go to a Broadway show or the equivalent of a Broadway show and... Being in the first 15 rows, center, orchestra, that's going to set you back more than being elsewhere. You know, somewhat behind a post or partially obscured view or way up in the the mezzanine or the balcony beyond that. It's just how supply and demand works. It's how ticket pricing 
structures have been erected in really all of the comparable spaces, and now it's moving, I would say almost belatedly, to movies. Now, maybe there'll be a backlash, maybe it won't work, maybe there's something fundamentally different about going to the movies than any of the other examples that I just gave, but AMC's at least going to experiment with this and try it and kind of see how it goes. So I have rationally explained my position. Now, for a different position, let's bring in Cookie, who is just up in arms, fit to be tied. Christine, why are you even mad about this? You don't go to the movies. You don't like the movies. You're paranoid at the movies. You're convinced that terrible things will happen to you at the movies. Why have you been pushing this story so hard? Because whoever came up with the plan is an absolute moron. That's why I'm angry. I'm angry for other people. Your argument about concerts and sporting events and theatrical productions is not the same because those events are expected to be full. So you are paying no, for the seat that you... Yes, they are. For the majority, if you're going to the Beyonce concert or, you know, what uh, Taylor Swift, you're, it's expected to be full. So, Christine, yeah, sure, Christine let me just, let's just pause here. I am a Northwestern football fan. There are about half of our football games at home every year where my expectation is the stadium will be at best 70% full and possibly less. Like there's not an expectation that it's full. And yet a 50-yard line ticket is still going to cost me more than an end zone seat, even if there are 28,000 people sitting in the stadium that seats 47,000. That doesn't change the fact, even like when people are trying to offload their tickets for events on like StubHub in the secondary market, the good seats cost more. It's just how it works. It also is regulated. Like there are people at those concerts, at those events, maybe, I don't know about Northwestern, but like they will monitor who is sitting where, who's going to monitor this at the movie theater. And to be honest, unless it's like Top Gun, you know, on opening weekend, the majority of movie theaters are empty. So sure. I, I'm, I'm going to take a gamble and I'm not going to pay the extra. I'm going to go there. And then if there's an empty seat, I'm just going to move up. Like, who's going to regulate that? Are they going to well, hire people now? Yeah, someone that? with a little flashlight might come over and be like, ma'am, this is not your seat. Also, ma'am, what is that flask? Right? Like, these are the things that would happen. You, <laughs> you mentioned Top Gun as an example, a movie that you still haven't seen, right? Last we checked, you hadn't seen one. it. You saw the, yeah, first, the first one, one, but not the second one. You and Wyatt were derelict on that. Have you? When was the last time you went to a movie theater, Christine? Ooh. Hmm. What was that movie with Lady Gaga and uh, oh, A Star that is really... Born? Yes, that was a good one. Okay, that's, so it's been a few years. Are you aware that a lot of movie theaters have moved to an assigned seating model, like where you can go on the app like Fandango or whatever and pick your seats and buy those seats? It's the same cost as the other ones in the past, but you actually pick your seats. So you have people reserving specific seats. That has been common practice in a lot of theaters for years now, Christine. The only difference is now that they're like tiering the pricing just a little bit to reflect the desirability of the seats. So like the enforcement argument doesn't make sense because we already have assigned seating in a lot of theaters. People show up like, hey, that's my seat. Someone's going to come enforce it. Yeah, but like maybe halfway through uh, the 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 movie, uh, sure you could bring me go bring me to my seat. Have at it. That's great. So now AMC's paying people to do this. Guess what? Halfway through, I see some a seat better open. Me and Megan are hightailing it over there. And what are they going to do about it? 
So the whole plan is null and void. So you're saying that you're just going to ignore the rules and it's therefore a scenario. <laughs> the rules should – well, I mean it's a scenario that's unlikely to actually play out because you don't go to the movies. Well, maybe right. if Hollywood made better movies, I would start going. Okay. So now, now you're just pandering to the conservative audience by attacking Hollywood. This is not about the content. This is about the pricing structure. I'm just impressed at how many arguments I've had. <laughs> Usually I run out after the first. <laughs> oh, you, you think this is going well. Okay, interesting. Yeah, oh, very um, well. So, Wyatt, Wyatt, you've been quietly listening to this. Um, what's your take? Are you impressed with Christine's arguments here? I mean, some of them are valid. I just – I don't go to the movies, so I – just don't really care. I don't like being in in large groups of people and kind of trapped somewhere. And but let me I mean, ask you this: Why, when you go on like at least a weekly basis to a jam packed theater to listen to Paul Gigot read aloud from the Wall Street Journal, being closer to Paul Gigot, that costs you more, right, than being way back in the cheap seats, like the people who might as well just buy the Daily News, if you know what I mean. Yeah, like I get that argument. I'm I'm in support of that. But I also understand Christine's argument of saying like if there's an open seat once the movie starts, like, yeah, I'm going to move into that seat as well. It's kind of the same thing like on an airplane. Like if you see an open row, like a crossing. And sporting events. It's like people are going to move around. By the way, I love that Wyatt was just completely unfazed by my completely made up scenario of like live readings of the Wall Street Journal as if he pays to go see this on a regular basis. Just not even just like, oh, yeah, that hypothetically, sure. Dan, help me out here. Well, as an avid goer of the movie theater, um, I am okay with it. I don't mind it. I honestly, I love going to the movie theater so much. and I love seeing movies in the theater because it's like the way to see it, especially like a big blockbuster like Star Wars or something like that. Just looks and sounds so much better. But I don't mind sitting anywhere else. I don't need to sit in these primo seats because I'll enjoy it either way, unless it's like right up front, like you said in the beginning. Like you don't want to just like look straight up the entire time. But I'm okay with it. And I go all the time. I know it's expensive, um, but I like to support some uh, theater companies because not a lot of people go and they're losing money, but I get it, you know? So I think that you are the most avid moviegoer of this crew. It's you by far. Yeah. And then me. I'll go maybe a couple times a year at most. And then Christine and White, who just don't. Uh, on the planning call for the show earlier, you had a very sort of Trumpy phrase where you said, <laughs> we love movie theater. <laughs> like, not even plural, just singular. We love movie theater. My thing is, the seat that I really want, if I can get it, is like, let's say you've got the, the front section of seats, which no one wants, right? Like right up front where you're looking straight up. No one wants those seats. Then you've got the main primary section of the seats, which is, you know, a much steeper incline. I like to be in the very front row of that if there is a railing in front because, A, it's easier to slip in and out if I go to the bathroom, and you can put your feet up on the lower part of the railing, which is much more comfortable for me. So would I spend, I don't know, a couple bucks extra for that, for that access and for that comfort? I think I probably would. Well, they have the seats that recline now. So you just put it all the way back, and you're sitting pretty, like, all the way back, like you're at home in a lazy boy. It's fantastic. Have you seen yeah, those? Yeah, I mean, they've, they've made some, some strides in the space. You can, like, order booze at some of these places yeah. now. See, now Christine's suddenly interested. She's like, hang Wait, on what? now. Yeah, what, what's happening now? Alcohol? So we have to leave it there. Something for Christine to think about as she 
perhaps reconsiders her position. She came, she came ready for this argument. You can decide whether she won or lost, but we'll see if this works. Like, it'll either work for AMC and all the other chains are going to do it. It will become the standard. Or there'll be a backlash. They'll quietly drop it, and it'll be back to general admission. We'll see. Guy Benson Show back from D.C. tomorrow, same time and same place. We will talk to you then. Thank you, as always, for listening. Have a great night. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.